Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. My name is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. There's a big difference between a solution that measures a fundraiser's performance and a solution that helps a fundraiser perform. QBAC helps fundraisers to excel at their most critical task, developing deep, meaningful relationships with donors and cultivating them into lifelong givers. Give your fundraisers a better qualified portfolio, one that considers more than just capacity and simple scoring. Your fundraisers will also get insights into the hearts, minds, and connections of their donors. Fundraisers have a tough job. Help them close bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Podcast listeners, the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow is finally back on the schedule. We have several dates confirmed. Since 2014, our team has been providing high-quality one-day roadshows in partnership with nonprofit leaders who want to showcase their space and provide thought-provoking and highly interactive fundraising training in their nonprofit community. Our roadshows have been described by our guests as hands-down the best professional development experience that they have ever been a part of. This experience has been described as challenging assumptions with conversation-inspiring content and new ways of thinking. If you would like to register for one of the upcoming stops on the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow, just visit the link in the show notes. We have been setting this conversation up for a couple of weeks as we've been talking about your upcoming conference. We'll start with you, Nika. How about we just go around the room and let the three of you um, introduce yourselves. Wonderful. Thank you, Jason. I'm really happy to be here with you and, of course, with my sisters. My name is Anika Allen. I am a relationship builder, a stone catcher, a freedom fighter, a coach, and a storyteller. And I pour all of those identities into my work at the Empathy Agency, where I am the principal and founder. And I work with organizations and their leaders to better understand the impact that identity has on uh, equity outcomes and culture. Oh, happy to jump right in, Jason, and and great to be here, as uh, Anika said. So I, I think the, the first thing I always talk about uh, when I introduce myself is is the fact that I'm anchored by family. Um, that is the foundation, I think, for who I am and how I appear in the world. Uh, I'm also in, in the work realm. I'm the founder and principal of Boundless Philanthropy, which is a fundraising consultancy providing a range of services from uh, you know, interim senior leadership support to strategy development. Uh, as you know, I'm, I'm the co-editor of uh, Collecting Courage, Joy, Pain, Freedom, Love. And um, I'm also a book review panelist with the Charity Report. And I'm also a contributing editor uh, to the Charity Report. I belong to the Black Fundraiser, Canadian Fundraisers Collective, as, as do my, my two sisters here. And um, 
you know, in addition to my fundraising career, I think uh, of late, I've been more entranced by language. Well, I've always been entranced by language. Let me put it that way. But I'm being a, a lot more public about language and the, the power of words. Uh, so I'm exploring that a bit more uh, than I did uh, in, in all my 25 plus years fundraising career. Thank you, Jason. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I'm Camila. I am a black woman born and raised in Brazil. Um, I learned from a very young age about race relations in my country and where I would stand in that society, which is at the mo the bottom of the bottom that you can imagine. That's where a black woman is. Um, I've made the purpose of my life to make sure that any work I do uh, needs to have a meaning and and help and impact someone. That's one of the main reasons why I am working in the nonprofit sector, as well as um, make sure that I can contribute towards the elimination of all types of prejudice um, so we can live a better world. Um, so that's the main reason why I do what I do. I do this fantastic work with my sisters and because uh, it's who I am. And so that's a little bit about myself. Just give us a little bit of history of how this group, we sort of hear that story a little bit. Absolutely. In 2018, I was feeling a bit dismayed uh, at, our, at our sector and particularly our profession because I didn't see any uh, Black Canadian women's voices being elevated uh, in in, in the sector, particularly through uh, our membership organization at the time, the Association of Fundraising Professionals, and they had put out a proposal um, asking people to share, you know, ideas and ways that they can contribute to, to the work that they're doing. And I thought it would be a great idea to, to offer um, some ideas around the ways in which Black Canadian women, fundraisers, many of the women I was spending great time with, um, what we had to offer. And a long story short, we, we came to an agreement that we would make a multitude of contributions, and we did that. And it was called the Project in Totality, it was called Our Right to Heal, and your listeners can, can just Google that and see what that entailed. But one of the core elements of that were 10 first-person narratives by Black Canadian women around the theme, Our Right to Heal. That project was supposed to launch initially in January of 2020, and it was delayed. And then it was scheduled for March of 2020, and we all know what happened then. And so it was delayed again. And um, so we weren't sure when it would come into the world, uh, but it was then scheduled for May. And little did we know that the date that was scheduled would be the day after George Floyd was murdered. And so... Our Right to Heal came into the world at this really crucial point uh, where we were having conversations that we had never had before. And I feel like, you know, the world had the capacity to hear our stories in a new and different way. And so as a result, that ushered in a really beautiful opportunity, um, which is, as you know it today, collecting courage. But Nicole can tell you how it got to that point. All right. Thank, thanks, Anika. So, uh while that was unfolding in terms of the All Right to Heal uh, project, uh, there were similar parallel events, I'd say, happening. Um, the Black Canadian Fundraisers Collective 
our book club ha had uh, selected Gail Pico's book, uh, Cap in Hand, How Charities Are Failing the People of Canada and the World, as our December 2019 uh, book club selection. I had known Gail for uh, quite a number of years uh, prior to all of this. Uh, so I approached her to see if she would actually join us for the discussion and the conversation. Um, I think what happened or what, what happened in terms of that meeting is she saw these amazing uh, fundraisers, black fundraisers in, in this room discussing her book. Uh, she floated this idea about a compilation of stories uh, featuring the voices of black fundraisers, uh, which is interesting because that also came on the heels of All Right to Heal. And um, in, in February 2020, she actually launched um, an online uh, publication called uh, The Charity Report. And then shortly after that, she, she launched uh, Gail K. Pico Books. So this was February 2020. Um, as, as Anika points out, uh, the All Right to Heal project just kept being pushed back in terms of a publishing date. And um, when that came out uh, at the same time as uh, the murder of Mr. Floyd, uh, Gail reached out to me uh, the month after June 2020, uh, sort of saying, you know, it's time to make this idea become a reality. Uh, we need to, to tell the stories of, of Black fundraisers. The time was, was right. Um, immediately, I reached out to Anika, who I'd known again for, for many years, and she reached out to members of the Black Canadian Fundraisers Collective, and, and Camilla jumped on board, and, and, and we became uh, the three co-editors. Amelia, would anything you'd like to add to that? I was wondering here, should I? <laughs> um, I just want to add a tiny. I want to add a tiny bit to it. Um, so you see, the, the book the book has um, is divided in four sections, right? Joy, pain, freedom, love, and uh, we often ask how we came about to those four. Um, so it was a lot of brainstorming. They actually they, they really sent. I don't want to say symbolize, but it signifies a lot of the the um, the feelings we go through in our careers, the ups and downs and hopes and desires. So that's what the pain, uh, joy, pain, freedom, love. Um, it brings that that meaning to to what what we go through our lives and careers. So that's how it came about through a lot of brainstorming and doodling <laughs> from Nicole. And I say this all the time. Um, and and also another part that I think is really curious on how the book came together is that we all wrote separately. So we, we knew who and I mean as the as the co-editors, we knew who was writing under each of the the, the sections, but the actual uh, contributors didn't know all of that. And and so as as we start receiving their their stories and we start reading it, the way it all fell into place and and from one story to the next it makes it's so rich and it, and it flows so well um and there's a common thread um i think that's really this to me is the the special part of this this the project this book and and the movement that we're creating um from this from the book is how our stories intersect is how we lean into each other, is how um, listening to one another gives us so many validation. Um, it really validates our experiences and the importance of documenting all that. And the docu that, that documenting piece has to be from us. 
we are the ones telling our stories. Yes, yes. I, I, I remember in reading your section, for example, you talk about Fieri and Fieri talks a lot about you, you cite Fieri and Fieri talks about, you know, the person in the oppressive role has to be you have to create your own you have to create your own freedom you know it's not mine to give to you yeah. um and um and so this is definitely representative of that i wonder if the three of you could just sort of um so as i've shared with all three of you before you know i've read through this the first time i i, I probably didn't let it sort of sink in the second time i really let it sink in and then most recently as we've been talking about having these conversations i've let it sunk in in perhaps the most profound ways but there's a moment here in the uh, Sherry. Sherry James is telling the. Is it Sherry? I want to make sure I'm. Um, uh, she's telling her story. Yeah, Sherry James tells this story about a mover and shaker who says to her, um, "He gave me the most impactful advice that I've carried with me since. This sector is one of the is one. This sector is one of the most racist. Do not be fooled by its label, charity." That's that's a pill that's really hard for a white guy like me who went to graduate school and you know believes in this and and, and consults with these organizations etc cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, probably may know this gentleman that's being cited here. Um, Take that. Help me help me swallow that pill. <laughs> Does that make sense? Listen, listen, the, the pill is there for you, Jason. So if you swallow, you swallow it, right? Yes, ma'am. Um, I, I, I think, you know, when we introduced the, the book, we talked about the sector being bestowed with this idea of being inherently good. And, uh, and, and I think, you know, folks who work in the sector uh, come to it, trying to do good in this world, being human beings, but being humanistic about their approach. But I think we have to also acknowledge that the way um, charity is positioned and, and the beginnings of that, the way that industrial idea of charity is rooted in a colonial structure and a colonial past, and, and, and that by its very nature is going to seep into the structures of, of charities, right, and how things are carried out. So the idea of savorism, right? The idea of me knowing best to tell communities what to do, negating uh, the, the, the experiences of, of communities we work with, uh, negating their agency to, to understand the issues they're dealing with, and coming up with the, the types of solutions. So I think that is the thing. As a, as a sector, uh, we have to grapple with, with, with that history uh, not run away from it, but we need to acknowledge it. And then we need to sort of see what we need to do in order to change the way things are structured and the, the, the way we approach uh, the work that we do. So I think, you know, I'll just leave it at that. And then uh, Camilla, Anika, jump in. Yeah, I, I, I think what Nicole is saying is really important to focus in on. And I also think it is equally vital to appreciate that the charitable sector does not exist outside of society. Mm -hmm. It exists inside yep. yes. a cultural norm, right? Mm -hmm. And when we examine, you know, that cultural norm, we know that that cultural norm is white supremacy culture. And the result of white supremacy culture is, also, is always oppression. And racism is one of those forms of oppression. And so, to, con to, to conceive that somehow 
this this current version of the sector could could somehow evade that is faulty thinking. And Nicole, Nicole, in your in your section of the book, you write a series of poems. A sector holding closely to its charitable roots, doing good deeds and serving those in most need, outwardly facing, on surface appearing, all compassion and caring, purity and goodness overflowing. But alas, that veneer is peeling. The story that's been told is incomplete. Curtain call, re- curtain call reveals secrets concealed, underbelly of injustices born on branches. Supremacy of whiteness has taken firm root even here. I mean, that's what we're talking about. That's what you're asked. That's what you three women are asking us to confront. That's the pill you're asking us to, you're you're saying it's time for guys like me to swallow it. Well, if our sector is really about loving people, I mean, I guess, I guess the question becomes, well, what people, Mm -hmm. what people are we talking about loving? Are we talking about loving all people? Is we're talking about loving all people, then we actually have to grapple with what Nicole has written. What, what, and, and she has simply reflected, right, the reality around us. Yeah, I, I think that's so true, right? So for, for me, this idea of un, un, unveiling is, and I talk about this underbelly, uh, again, the, the, the public face of, of charity is different than the lived experience of experiences of some of us who work in the sector, right? So in order for us to sort of move forward and, uh, you know, there's this idea of aspiring to be, to be better, to do better. Um, I think we have to, we have to come face to face with that, right? We have to acknowledge that and we have to uh, find ways to, to act and to change uh, the things that are there. We can't continue to bury it and pretend it doesn't exist. And uh, Camilla mentioned about, um, you know, the stories we have heard incredible feedback from folks saying, you know, the stories are validating. And we're hearing people saying the stories are validating and they're not black people, right? They're validating because they have faced some form of oppression within the sector and they, the stories and the experiences resonate with them because of that. Your poem that you entitled C, you write, accused of being angry, aggressive and intimidating, body language, glances and glares, signal blackness in need of checking, warned to tone it down, tame our hair, don't take credit, don't say, don't say much. That's what I've heard from other, you know, other women of color. Talk well, I think I, I, I think I think it, it's it's straight up, right? There mm-hmm. is a, a jacket that we are expected to wear. Yeah. Right. And until we get permission to wiggle within that jacket. Yeah. Right. So I think that's what it's saying. And 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 then again, that whole idea of pretense. So, uh, you know, the performative thing to say there's inclusion and belonging and all are welcome, and when we know that's Certainly not the case, right? But whenever it's time to to show to the world, to put on this show, to be on that stage, we're invited to show up so we can be the example or we can validate that there's there is this uh, facade of inclusion and everybody having a voice. Now, when we do not 
fit into that jacket and we push back, then there are serious consequences for us when we do that. And I think that is something you hear right throughout all the 15 contributions that were made. And Camilla talked about that common thread. Well, you know, a lot of us have sat in that jacket at different points in time. Sometimes we push, sometimes we sit in the jacket, we hold our tongue, we 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 conform to whatever that standard is. Mm-hmm. Um, and anytime we wiggle outside of the, those boundaries, uh, the, the consequences are great. So I think what it's saying is that there comes a point in time where uh, there is a reckoning and there's a reckoning for us as individuals who are sitting in that and feeling that, that reckoning is or health or wellness, right? Or mental health, right? Or very beings, we're being hurt. We're, that, that, that we are absorbing that trauma and we cannot continue to do that. There are serious consequences to that. So we have to just break free. And I think this, what you're seeing in the book is people at that stage where there, some of us have gone beyond it. Like we have wrestled this dragon and we're out. We are coming out. Others are in that process, right? Of, of, of recognizing and acknowledging this is how they've reacted. And now is the time to do something different. I was just right about to say that, Nicole, that all of us has been in that jacket for whatever number of years, months, days, whatever it is, because when you are when you are in a system that we know uh, racism is systemic, right? So it's really difficult to have any sort of, uh, and I don't even know if I can call that success, if you don't at some point confirm to the norms that have been established by others. Um, even if that success is to keep that job because you need it, yeah. right? Um, and so, uh, and, and I see that in myself, for example, and, and I know that, um, especially when I first came to Canada, um, for, for a few years, I just had to do it because you know that, and every time that I will go outside the lines a little bit, you get reprimanded. And the reprimand will come into your performance review. Even though you're bringing in a chunk of money to the organization, there will always be a note there saying that you have to do X, Y, Z. So there are ways that this is done in, in a way that it can really hurt you in your career and progressing. Whatever it is, number of years you need in organization, and then you go to another one, whatever opportunities you can have. Um, and so you conform until you have enough support. Um, and and this, this, my sisters and the Black Canadian Fundraisers Collective literally show, came into my life at the right time because I knew I couldn't do it anymore. But you need a support system. You need um, a new validation. Of course, you need to hear that you're not being super sensitive. Because you hear that a lot when you when there are situations. Are you sure? Aren't you reading into it a little bit too much? And we've all been in very similar situations, so we know we're not. But that uh, uh, meeting people that are doing the same type of work that, as you are is really important for you to really feel stronger um, and to and to set a timeline or or 
be able to break free at some point because you know um, their support, you know their other ways, uh, and you've seen others doing it, so you know it's possible as well because that's very important. When you were you taking a stand, um, you know there will be consequences, but you need to make sure that you're going to be okay. Because let's be honest, we all need to work. We have to. <laughs> we need money, so that's how it is. So you need to make sure you're going to be okay. And and that's another reason why a lot of people stay for longer. They just you just make it work somehow. But it, as Nicole mentioned, it takes a toll on yourself. Because coming back from work every day and you're upset or you keep on reliving and rethinking those situations, it's brutal. And you know that the next morning you have to go back. How long do you actually can, for, for how long can you do that? A few things have, have, have occurred to me as I'm listening to this. It, you know, one, I love the metaphor that Nicole is sharing about the jacket. Yeah, because metaphors just have a really wonderful way yes. of helping our minds understand yes. things, right? And so, you know, what happens in our organizations when people refuse to wear the jacket? You know, that's a question that emerges for me. You know, what do we do to people who say, "No, that's not my color. I'm not wearing that," or "That jacket's too small," or "That jacket make, doesn't make me feel very good." What do we do to those people? I think that's a, a great question to think about, but. Broader than that, I think understanding that belonging is just as important to us as humans as love. We need it like we need to be loved. Yeah. And belonging is not just, you know, this quaint thing that we have decided to create and tack it on the end of some acronym that's supposed to represent some fairness for somebody, right? But it's actually tied to culture. It's culture that has the ability to make our bodies feel safe. And so we're back at culture again. Mm -hmm. And we know culture eats strategy for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Mm -hmm. And as much as, you know, our EDI, DEI, JEDI initiatives want to talk about all the ways in which we are different and let's just open up the umbrella and welcome everybody in, that's problematic because here's the deal. As much as we do that, it doesn't do anything about the dominant culture. It doesn't deal with it. And it's that culture that says, put the jacket on, that we don't care, put the jacket on. And don't wiggle in the jacket. And if you take the jacket off, there's consequences. I want to hear your response to the idea that I was taught as the white guy in the room, I was taught to take that damn jacket off as early as I possibly could. I don't know. I would challenge you. I would say, no, that jacket was custom designed. What I'm what I'm getting at it with my thought here, my reaction to 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 Nicole's description of that jacket, Mm -hmm. I I don't think I ever felt like I had to wear that jacket. Maybe that. Like, I don't think I, nobody's ever told me to keep that damn jacket on. Well, that's the beauty of the jacket. Mm-hmm. When you're wearing it, <laughs> right. you don't actually know that it's on. It doesn't confine you. Yeah. Yes, yeah. that's good. You're yeah. right. I don't even know yeah. it's there. 100%. You don't know it because it was made to fit you perfectly, no matter what size you have to be, no matter what stage of life you have to be in. No matter if you change your mind about A or B or C or D, 
it, 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 it's, it's designed to just move with you. Okay. Makes you breathe. Allows you to breathe. Yeah. That's going to sit with me. That's going to sit with me. We agreed to have two conversations. We're up to about a half hour. What I'd like to do for a few moments before we sort of wrap up this conversation and move to the next one is I'd like to just have have the three of you or one of you or what, however you'd like to do this. Tell us about the upcoming conference. For my listeners, we're going to put some information in the show notes. Um, uh, so can you tell us about that? Then we'll wrap up and we'll bring this back to a second conversation um, Camila, I really want to. I, re- I really want to reflect on some of your uh, story as well. So we'll do that in the next in the next episode. The conference is called A Path to Action. It is November eighteenth and nineteenth, and it will be virtual. And so we are inviting anyone who feels resonant uh, with the conversation that we're having here. But more than that, in understanding some of the realities that we are illuminating. If you're interested in exploring the question, what do I do next, then this is the place for you to come. And what we'll be doing is we'll be unpacking um, some curriculum that we just designed and that will be launched uh, on the second anniversary of Collecting Courage, which is November 25th. And that curriculum is called A Path to Action, Journey Towards Collecting Courage. And we'll be bringing a couple of those modules from the curriculum to life in the sessions. And we're partnering with our sister, Mazarine Treyes from Wild Woman Fundraising. And she will be curating the second day and there'll be an exploration of uh, whiteness. So how to be a traitor to whiteness, how to be a traitor to patriarchy. And so together, we think we're going to begin to have some deeper conversations about what is our path to action as it relates to these oppressions. We'll continue in the next session. Thank you. Thanks, Jason. Thanks, Jason. Thank you. Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all too familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent challenges our ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.